0: Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 153, Staten Island and Setauket. A few weeks ago, I talked about General Howe's decision to put most of his army aboard ship and sail out to sea. No one was sure where he would land, but most thought the ultimate destination was Philadelphia. When the fleet sailed away from New York City in late July 1777, Howe left General Henry Clinton in command of the city with a few thousand soldiers, most of whom were Hessians or local militia. General Howe wanted his best combat soldiers with him for the conquest of Philadelphia. In preparation for the removal of so many troops from New York City, the British abandoned the even tiny toeholds across the Hudson River in New Jersey, which they had held all winter. Places like Elizabethtown, Amboy, and Brunswick. Although this meant completely abandoning New Jersey, the British did not want to leave any isolated outposts that could be subject to attack. Putting the Hudson River between the two armies, was a pretty substantial barrier for any army to cross. The river was deep enough at all points that no army could ford it from New Jersey to New York. British forces, however, were still spread out all over New York City area, including the occupation of all of Long Island, Staten Island, and Manhattan Island. This was probably about 2,000 square miles of land being guarded by only a few thousand soldiers with the departure of Howe's fleet, even holding that New York City area, left some units relatively isolated and in areas potentially vulnerable to attack. After a slow start that spring, mid-August saw a flurry of activity. General Burgoyne's Northern Army had reached the Hudson River. General St. Ledger was beginning to besiege Fort Stanwix and Washington was still desperately searching for where General Howe's fleet was headed. As Washington moved around to the Philadelphia area trying to get intelligence on General Howe's army, Major General John Sullivan commanded the army keeping an eye on General Clinton in New York City. Sullivan, you may recall, had been captured during the Battle of Long Island a year earlier. Then exchanged at the end of 1776, in time to command Washington's right wing at the Battle of Trenton. Over the winter, Sullivan remained with Washington near Morristown in New Jersey as Americans contended with the British over northern New Jersey in the Forage War. Sullivan maintained an independent command after Washington took the bulk of the army south toward Philadelphia in search of General Howe. Sullivan expected that at some point Washington would determine that Howe was headed for Philadelphia or some other point further south. Once confirmed, the bulk of the army remaining in northern New Jersey would march to support the main army. In the meantime, Sullivan's soldiers mostly remained in camp, just in case the enemy in New York conducted another raid into New Jersey, or in the event that General Howe's fleet returned to New York City. Although the British had given up their camps in northern New Jersey, Tory militia stationed on Staten Island still conducted raids into the area looking for prisoners and supplies. Sullivan learned that these Loyalist raiders operated from along the western edge of Staten Island, just across the river from New Jersey, totaling between 400 and 700 militia. Accounts differ. These Loyalists were not all in one place but they were scattered in groups of between 100 and 250 soldiers per camp. Also on Staten Island, there were an estimated 1,600 or so British regulars stationed up at the northeastern edge of the island, facing Manhattan. Sullivan and his officers developed a plan to land about 2,000 soldiers on Staten Island, surround and capture the isolated militia outfits camped there, then bring back their prisoners and supplies to New Jersey before the larger camp of British regulars could learn of the raid and react to defend the island. The Americans would land two separate forces, totaling about 1,000 men each, on different parts of the island. General William Smallwood would command one of the forces. Smallwood was an experienced officer who had distinguished himself as a colonel Commanding Maryland regiments during the New York campaign, Smallwood's Maryland regiment had proven itself in battle and had taken very heavy casualties while fighting the rearguard action at the Battle of Long Island that allowed so many other American regiments to escape capture. Colonel Smallwood was not with his regiment that day because he had been called to court-martial duty in Manhattan. He did, however, lead his regiment with distinction in subsequent battles during the same campaign and was wounded at the Battle of White Plains. While recovering from his wounds over the winter, Congress promoted him to Brigadier General and sent him back to Maryland to recruit more volunteers. He returned to serve under Sullivan's command. Sullivan ordered Smallwood to lead a division that would row across the river from Elizabethtown, New Jersey and land near the northern tip of Staten Island. General Sullivan selected General Prudhomme de Boer to lead the 2nd Division. I mentioned in an earlier episode that de Boer was one of the first French officers to reach America with one of those commissions from Silas Deane in Paris. Before Congress got overwhelmed with these commissions, it enthusiastically commissioned de Boer as a brigadier general and backdated his commission so that he would have seniority over more than a dozen other recently promoted Continental Brigadier Generals. Up until this time, de Boer had not seen much action in America. He had joined Washington at Morristown in May and had played a minor role at the Battle of Short Hills. But for the attack on Staten Island, General Sullivan had de Boer take his division across the Hudson River, landing on the west coast of the island where his army would round up and surround Loyalists and ship them back to New Jersey. The Americans rode across the Hudson River in the pre-dawn hours to avoid detection. The Continentals assembled and marched inland, the two divisions raiding several Tory militia outposts as planned. The plan of action was hit-and-run raids, taking militia prisoners and bringing them back to a ferry which was near a tavern called Old Blazing Star on the west coast of the island. From there, the Continentals would ship the prisoners back to New Jersey and hold them as prisoners of war. The morning landing and initial attacks went as planned. Colonel Matthias Ogden reported a sharp firefight against a Loyalist Outpost, where he took 80 prisoners. His force then retreated back to Old Blazing Star Ferry and removed the soldiers and prisoners back to New Jersey. Generals Sullivan and DeBoer took a larger force of the Continentals to attack the larger Loyalist outpost under the command of Skinner's brigade. This Loyalist brigade was named after its commander, Brigadier General Cortland Skinner, a New Jersey Loyalist now serving as a militia commander for the Tory Army on Staten Island. Their outpost was under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Barton. In this case, the Loyalists detected the Continental attack and fled into the woods and swamps before their attackers could capture them. The Americans did capture about 40 prisoners, including Colonel Barton. Some of the soldiers chased retreating Loyalists all the way back to General Skinner's headquarters. There, a stiff defense from the larger garrison forced them to back off. At the same time, General Smallwood took a separate force led by a local guide. Their goal was to get behind the Loyalist force on the northern coast, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Abraham Van Buskert. He was another North Jersey Tory who led a militia regiment. His regiment had moved to Staten Island after the British had left New Jersey. Although General Smallwood had hoped to attack this group from the rear, their guide, either through incompetence or more likely Tory leanings, Led the Americans right to the front of the Loyalist defenses. Nevertheless, General Smallwood ordered a charge. The surprised Loyalists fled their camp, allowing the Americans to plunder their supplies and capture the enemy standard. By mid morning, the raid seemed to be going pretty well for the Americans. They began moving back toward their designated retreat point at the old Blazing Star Ferry. The divisions met up at Richmond which was a village in the center of Staten Island, and marched together back to the ferry. That's where things started to break down. General Sullivan had expected to find a fleet of boats that had carried his army to the island to be waiting there, ready for him to move back his prisoners to New Jersey. Instead, the boats were not there. They only had three smaller boats, which would require multiple trips and many hours to transport the soldiers across the river in the meantime loyalist militia general skinner had rallied and organized the militia that had fled during the morning he began marching a column to go after the americans similarly the regulars who were on the island had by this time received word of the attacks british general john campbell led a column of nearly a thousand regulars and hessians on a march after the american raiders As the Americans attempted to cross their soldiers and prisoners at Old Blazing Star Ferry, the enemy arrived and engaged them. General Sullivan deployed a rear guard of two companies, totaling between 80 and 100 men, to hold off the enemy while the rest of the Americans did their best to escape across the river. By about 5 p.m., the Americans had managed to evacuate all of their forces, except for the small rear guard that had been covering their escape. Sullivan attempted to extract the rear guard. However, the boats he deployed refused to come near shore for fear of taking enemy fire. By this time, the British had brought up artillery and could fire on the boats from the shore. The frightened pilots tried to return to New Jersey. The Americans on the New Jersey coast fired on the boats in order to force the pilots to go back to Staten Island and pick up their retreating comrades. As a result, the pilots simply sat in the middle of the river, trying to avoid fire from either side. Eventually, the men in the rear guard ran out of ammunition. The much larger British and Loyalist force overran their position, capturing about half the American defenders still on the island. The rest of the soldiers jumped into the Hudson River and swam across to New Jersey. Overall, the Americans considered the raid a failure the British had managed to capture about 150 of the raiders, although the British commander reported to his superiors that he had captured 259. The Americans lost about 10 killed and 20 wounded. General Sullivan reported to Washington that he held about 150 enemy prisoners, although he's kind of vague on whether all of them were captured on this raid. It appears that many were not and had been captured earlier. The British reported only 89 missing after the raid, with another 5 killed and 7 wounded. General Sullivan would later face a court-martial over complaints that the raid was not properly organized, that the goals of the raid did not justify the risk, that the evacuation of the island was bungled, and that exhausted soldiers were marched away without a chance to rest in New Jersey after the battle the court-martial would acquit Sullivan of all charges, and he would continue with his reputation intact. On the very same day as Sullivan's raid on Staten Island, August 22, the Continentals conducted a second raid on Long Island. I found no evidence that these two were coordinated in any way. It appears that they were launched on the same date as a coincidence the Long Island Raid was done under the command of General Israel Putnam, which was a completely separate command from that of General Sullivan. The Long Island attack seems to be a reprise of the Meigs Raid on Sag Harbor when the Continentals raided the eastern tip of Long Island back in May, an attack I discussed more back in Episode 139. Following that raid, which was considered a great victory, General Samuel Parsons began planning for additional, similar raids on Long Island. Over the summer, Parsons had been moved to Peekskill to help shore up the defenses there and in preparations to deploy forces either north to Fort Ticonderoga or south to support Washington should General Howe attack in New Jersey. And indeed, Parsons had participated in defending against several of the British raids into northern New Jersey In late spring and early summer of 1777. By mid July, General Burgoyne had captured Fort Ticonderoga and was making his way south. At the same time, General Howe had put most of his army aboard ship and sailed out to the Atlantic Ocean for parts unknown. General Schuyler was screaming for any reinforcements that could be spared to defend against Burgoyne's invasion. General Parsons was writing to General Washington around this time expressing concern that too many reinforcements were being taken from Peekskill, leaving his garrison vulnerable to another raid should General Clinton decide to use some of his army in and around New York City to move a larger force up the Hudson River to support Burgoyne. With all these complaints about lack of manpower going on, it makes it a little perplexing why General Putnam Would order Parsons to bring a division down to Fairfield, Connecticut, and prepare for another raid on Long Island. The point of putting troops in Peekskill was so that they could support Fort Ticonderoga if needed. Although Ticonderoga had fallen quickly, the Northern Army was still in desperate need of support. A force under General Nixon had gone north, but Parsons remained in Peekskill, fearing a raid from General Clinton. Now, he was practically abandoning Peekskill not to go north and support General Schuyler, but to engage in a quick one-day raid on Long Island. Putnam ordered Parsons to assemble a force of about 500 Continentals in Connecticut to row across the Long Island Sound and attack the Loyalist garrison at Setucket and Huntington on Long Island. Parsons would take out the garrisons, free any American prisoners being held in the area, and capture or destroy any Loyalist supplies. General Parsons and his second-in-command Samuel Webb brought their brigade to Fairfield, Connecticut within a few days of receiving Putnam's orders. They assembled whaleboats and prepared for a nighttime crossing. Over on Long Island, Loyalist Colonel Richard Hewlett received word of a raid. Hewlett was a Long Island native who was a staunch Loyalist. He served as a militia officer in the French and Indian War under then-Colonel Oliver Delancey. By this time, Delancey was a Loyalist Militia General and Hewlett served as a colonel in Delancey's Brigade. Hewlett's command at Setauket consisted of only about 260 Loyalist militia. Hewlett had been using Setauket's Presbyterian Church as his headquarters the church, which sat at the top of a hill, provided a good defensive position. Hewlett's men had built earthen fortifications around the church, by some accounts about six feet high and five feet thick. Some accounts also indicate that they used gravestones from the churchyard to reinforce the walls. This, however, seems to have been added to the story later and is likely not true. Primary sources only note that a few of the stones were damaged during the battle. Hewlett posted four swivel guns, which are basically small cannons that are usually used on ships. The Loyalist regiment, which had been quartered around the village, learned of the approaching column in time to get inside their earthworks and take up a defensive position. By one account, Colonel Hewlett had to rush from his quarters to reach the fort just before the Americans arrived. When General Parsons and his army marched into Setucket just after dawn, they found the enemy well entrenched and ready for battle. Under a flag of truce, Parsons sent forward a note to demand their surrender. The Loyalists refused, and the two sides began firing on one another. Parsons had brought some small brass field cannon with him, while Hewlett defended with his swivel guns. The American cannons were not large enough to do much damage to the earthen walls, and the Continentals did not have the equipment or overwhelming manpower to storm the walls, and they really didn't have enough time to conduct a siege. After about three hours, Parsons grew concerned that the sustained cannon fire might draw the attention of British warships. He withdrew his men and returned to the whaleboats, where they crossed back to Connecticut. In the end, the raid accomplished almost nothing. Parsons did not capture any prisoners. By some accounts, the Americans did not manage even to kill or wound any of the defenders. The American attackers suffered only one man wounded. In other accounts, there were maybe up to a half dozen killed or wounded on each side. The Continentals did take a few houses and some other supplies, but nothing of real significance. Continentals monitored the Connecticut coast for a few days to make sure the Loyalists did not plan a counterattack. General Parsons then took up a position back at White Plains, New York. From there, he kept surveillance on the British forces in and around New York City to make sure General Clinton did not try to launch some sort of offensive up the Hudson River. Parsons reported to General Israel Putnam, who by this time had moved his headquarters to Peekskill, and Parsons also reported to the new Governor of New York, Governor George Clinton, no relation to British General Henry Clinton. Over on Long Island, Colonel Hewlett received praise from the British commander, Henry Clinton, for Hewlett's defense of his brigade at Setauket. Clinton's adjutant, Major Stephen Kemple, wrote, The general desires particularly to express his approbation of the spirited behavior and good conduct of Colonel Hewitt." And the officers and men under his command, in the defense of the redoubt at Setucket upon Long Island, in which Colonel Hewitt was attacked by a large body of the enemy with cannon, whom he repelled in disgrace. Despite the fears of Continental officers, though, General Clinton had no wishes to go on the offensive. He was still concerned that his army, composed mostly of Hessians and militia, was at risk of attack by the Continentals. These raids on Long Island and Staten Island did nothing to assuage that fear. The same day the Continentals conducted these raids on Staten Island and Setucket, General Washington received notification that the British fleet was landing in Maryland. Washington ordered all available Continentals in New Jersey to march down to the main army near Philadelphia where they could prepare to meet General Howe's army. Next week, we head north again as Militia General John Stark raises a New England militia army to take on General Burgoyne. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved, to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Trey Nance for his continued support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton level on Patreon. Also, thanks to my first Zelle donor, Brian Locke. I also want to give a shout out to Paul Fogarty, Griffin Hutch, Craig Ledit, and Ann Martin, who have provided generous support on PayPal. I really appreciate everyone who has made an effort to support the show and help us through these difficult times. This week, we covered the raid on Staten Island and the Battle of Setucket. Some of you may be fans of the AMC TV show, Turn. If so, you may be familiar with the Battle of Setucket from the Season 1 finale of the show. I love the show myself but it is historical fiction. It's not a documentary. The battle happened in 1777. The Culper spy ring on which the show is based did not form until 1778. On the show, the main character, Abraham Woodhull, was married and had a kid. In reality at this time, he did not. He was not married. He did not have a kid. Also, there were no public hangings going on during the battle the British did not hold hostages in the church. There were no British regulars at the battle. Although Major Hewlett was in command on both the show and in reality, in reality he was a Tory militia officer. On the show, he was a British regular. So, as I said, it's a great TV show. I recommend everybody watch the show Turn, but don't try to learn your history from watching it. In truth, the raids on Staten Island and Setucket did not really accomplish much of anything tactically. The raids did, however, confirm that British General Henry Clinton's fears that he was defending too much territory with too few soldiers. So raids like this did help keep him on the defensive rather than considering any sort of offensive actions. If you would like to read more about Long Island during the American Revolution, You may want to pick up this week's book recommendation. It is called Lost British Forts of Long Island by David M. Griffin. This book does not necessarily tell the story of the battles fought there in any great detail. Rather, it is a look at the British defenses on Long Island, including details about what happened to the forts after the war. So, if you have a particular interest in Long Island history, then you may enjoy this book. The author, David Griffin, works in the New York City area in the field of architecture and interior design, so that may explain his interest in and focus on Fort Design in this book. He has an obvious interest in the Revolutionary War era and has also written several articles for the Journal of the American Revolution. The book, which I think is his first, was first published in 2017 and is rather short at around 120 pages, not counting notes and index. As I said, if the topic of Long Island Forts is of interest to you, then Griffin's Lost British Forts of Long Island is one you may like. For my online recommendation this week, I want to take a closer look at the commanding general of this operation, John Sullivan. General Sullivan plays a very active role in our story so far, he was one of the Army's most senior major generals, receiving his appointment the same day in 1776 as Nathaniel Greene. Sullivan frequently had independent commands during the war, which is a sign of the faith that General Washington put in him as a field commander. Although Washington trusted him, Congress did not so much. Sullivan was never really a favorite of many within Congress. Some criticized him for carrying General Howe's message of peace proposals after the Battle of Long Island, and Sullivan just didn't play political games that many other officers seemed to do well in furtherance of their careers. Sullivan had been taken prisoner for a short time at the Battle of Long Island, but he was relatively quickly exchanged for British General Richard Prescott. Other than that period, he was an active general in the field for the first half of the war. He was one of the major generals that Washington counted on, not only as a field officer, but as a man who had Washington's back in the ongoing political games with Congress. As I mentioned in the main show this week, Sullivan would be criticized for his raid on Staten Island, but would be acquitted by a court of inquiry. Again, this was Congress second-guessing his military decisions, and General Washington and his fellow officers clearing his name. General Sullivan would resign his commission in 1779, ostensibly for health reasons, but it seems mostly because he was sick of the way Congress treated him. He was only 39 years old when he left service. When he resigned, Sullivan wrote to Washington, warning him that Congress and others were still playing political games to push Washington aside. After his resignation, Sullivan was approached by people representing the British military, Who tried to gauge his interest in switching sides. While he was upset at his treatment by the Continental Congress, he was not at the point of treason and declined the offer. The British did try this with a number of high-ranking American officers who seemed disaffected, with of course their only really high-level success being Benedict Arnold. Several months after leaving the Army, New Hampshire sent General Sullivan to the Continental Congress as a delegate. He spent a relatively unhappy year there and then returned to New Hampshire, where he served as Attorney General for many years. Many years after the war, President Washington would appoint Sullivan as a federal judge. So, John Sullivan has a long and interesting career, despite not being one of the most famous names from the war. Which brings me to today's online recommendation an ebook on archive.org called The Military Services and Public Life of Major General John Sullivan of the American Revolutionary Army by Thomas Amory. This is a 1868 biography of the general which will give you a better overview of his life with a particular focus on his military and political careers. You can search for the book on archive.org or, as always, I've added a direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans?